We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we, ought, we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. You may be seated. We are in week 10 of our series called God is Stranger, and in this series, as you have followed along over these last several weeks, this series is tackling all of the unhighlighted sections of the Bible. You know, the sections where we do highlight, those are the things that we clip out and, and maybe put on the refrigerator or put on our, our bathroom mirror and we memorize and all of that, but there's also parts of the Bible that we often don't look at, we don't pay attention to, we don't highlights, and, and yet what we found over these last several weeks is that there are, pl there's plenty to gain from these unhighlighted sections of, of the Bible, and I hope that it's both challenged and encouraged us over uh, the last uh, several weeks as we've gone through this. Uh, today, as I was uh, thinking about, gosh, what, what else do we have left in terms of the unhighlighted sections, you know, things that we often don't like to talk about or things that are very real, maybe in the scriptures that we, we tend to shy away from. And I thought, well, what the heck, let's talk about hell. See the irony, I said, what the heck, you know. <laughs> I could have said, what the hell, and you guys would be all mad with me, but... Hell is a really, really tough subject, and it's going to be uh, specifically addressed in Matthew chapter 25, and so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn that, uh, turn open to that. The scripture that was read for you is really a reinforcement of all the things we're going to be talking about and tackling here this morning. In Matthew chapter 25, uh, starting with verse 31, is a parable of Jesus that might be familiar to you, uh, 31 to uh, 46, and in it... Jesus addresses a tough subject. He talks about hell. And if you remember when I talked about Isaiah and the stranger, I talked about how the Old Testament, uh, or Ezekiel rather, had, the Old Testament kind of has a bad rap where people think that, you know, God in the Old Testament is a different God, you know, an angry, vengeful, bloodthirsty God. And the New Testament is full of grace, love, and mercy, and flowers, and 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 rainbows and all of those things. But here we arrive in, in Matthew 25, and we, we have some really tough words from, from Jesus, from Jesus himself. And it's, uh, we tend to not focus on these types of things, but Jesus said them. And I think we're encouraged to, to wrestle with these words and, and tackle some of these things. He addresses the subject of hell. And the subject of hell is is a really, you know, taboo subject. It's, it's difficult to bring up, especially for those maybe that are outside the church or maybe wrestling with their beliefs of, of this idea of hell. And, and, 
And in many ways, we can understand that, right? How, how do we square this idea that God is a loving God, and yet there's this idea of an, an eternal punishment in, in, the same, in the same being? How, how does that work? And a lot of people admittedly wrestle with, with those different thoughts. But what's really interesting, I, I find, is that when even people that believe in the existence of hell and people that have been brought up and taught and they, and they believe that, as the Bible talks about hell, they believe in that, that concept, even a careful look into this idea, this theology, this belief of this eternal place called hell, it's kind of eye-opening for people that already believe it once you look into the details and really do a careful reading of, of what th- is being described in this book, uh, the Bible. Because what we find in the Bible is a whole host of different ideas and metaphors and concepts and and beliefs. And it seems to, in many ways, uh, from beginning to end, this concept begins to evolve itself um, throughout the scriptures. It take on new layers of, of meaning. So I'd like for us to, to walk, help walk you through some of these different words and concepts that are in the Bible about this, this idea of hell. And, and hopefully that can give um, some clarity or maybe it would actually bring some more confusion, maybe in a good way of maybe surrendering some of our old um, you know, stereotypes or maybe some of the things that we read about and hear about um, in, in popular culture um, because, because the, you know, the outside world you know, struggles with this and, and maybe it seems to be sort of an unknown and a mysterious type of thing. Uh, most people and even many of us as believers will either dismiss the idea altogether or just avoid it or it becomes sort of uh, the butt of, of, of jokes. Um, I remember this one, I don't know why I have this, this one scene in my mind, it's funny the things that you actually remember, but there, I remember there was this episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson was uh, cast into to hell and the devil thought it was uh, the, the best way to torture, the most cruel way to torture him was to continually feed him donuts um, because he, he liked donuts and yet um, what the devil didn't, uh, count on is that Homer Simpson was so good at eating donuts that he was out eating the, the mechanism that the devil had, you know, and the devil got frustrated and sent him back because he didn't want to, to deal with him. And it becomes this sort of laughing matter because it just seems so, so foreign to us. So let's walk through a little bit together um, some of the different words that we have, the biblical words for hell. The, 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 what we find early in the, in the Old Testament is this word Sheol, Sheol or Sheol. And what this simply means, and this is actually kind of maybe eye-opening for some of you, what it really simply means is the grave or the, the place of the, of the dead. And what's really strange, because we often think of hell as a place for, you know, for the wicked and all of that, and we'll definitely get to that, but in the early, what we read in earlier, in the earlier books of the Bible, is that Sheol, this place, the grave, was simply the reference to where the righteous and the unrighteous would go. It was where people that would die, it's kind of where, where they would go. And it wasn't until later when Sheol was described as a place for the unrighteous, for the wicked, the people that would, uh, that would uh, throw themselves and, and submit themselves to the evils of this world and to the evil one and get caught up in all of that and, and, and be co-conspirators, so to speak, 
um, and is described as a, as a destination for them uh, in that. And, and that's largely the Old Testament word that we have, uh, although that word Gehenna is, is also, there's a Hebrew version of it that's referenced quite, quite fre- frequently. And in the New Testament, you see this, you know this word Hades. Hades is really a, a Greek word. It's kind of just an, a, a translation of the word Sheol. That they took the Greek word meaning and has similar enough concepts. Um, but Hades really is only used five times in the New Testament. It's not as, as common. And then they have this other word, Gehenna, which is layered with all of this metaphor and imagery and, and meaning. Uh, Gehenna is actually a place. It's on the south side of Jerusalem. And the history, the stories of history go back, way back when there were two kings of Judah, Ahaz and Manasseh, and they decided to no longer worship God. They were going to worship this God named Moloch of the Canaanites. And, and I mentioned this before, but the Canaanites, part of their worship was sacrificed, human sacrifice and child sacrifice. And so they actually, in this valley, that's where they would burn human beings for this false god, Moloch. And so, obviously, over the years, um, they recognize this place as a cursed place, as a, as a place of evil and of, of fire and of burning. And it became this sort of living metaphor, this visual for this idea of, of hell. And so piecing all of this together, um, also with a lot of different descriptors, you see in the Old Testament, the, the pit, which was simply the cistern. It gave this idea of falling down into the earth. Um, you see references to fire and darkness and weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. A lot of this is really difficult to kind of square and, and, and make sense of um, because it, it seems to be describing something that is, in large part, indescribable with, with, human, with human language. But there are some things that um, give us at least an idea, a general idea, uh, that I think all of us can grab a hold of. Number one, um, hell is not the place we want to go, right? It's not Disneyland, okay? And so that's the place to, to avoid. But Jesus really references, and he doesn't use any of these words, but in Matthew 25, he, he uses some of these descriptors. He calls it a place of eternal fire and a place of eternal punishment. And that makes it really difficult to wrestle with and to make sense of. And so whatever Jesus is saying in reference to these things, I, I think we can all admit that Jesus means it, right? That it's, it's really, really important. That if, if heaven and, and hell hang in the balance, that there is, there is something very serious going on in the mind, in the heart of, of Jesus. And so in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, what we have is a parable. And it's combined with a lot of different parables that speak mostly about the kingdom of God. What's a little significant about this, at least in the book of Matthew, is that this parable is the last teaching uh, before the events of Jesus' death and resurrection take place. So as soon as, if you're reading in the book of Matthew, after you read this parable, then the events begin to take place of Jesus' betrayal and his ultimate death and resurrection. And so he sets a scene that when he is going to return, he's going to return as a judge. And as a judge, he's going to separate all people, 
all the nations into two separate categories. One is the sheep, and one are, he, as he described, the goats. And the sheep are set aside to his right, and the goats are set aside to his left. And he begins to describe to the, a scenario in which they completely missed, both groups completely missed the presence of God, the presence of Jesus Christ right there in, in, in their midst. He said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And all of these different scenarios that, that he, he lays out. And we're going to talk about the, the sheep in, in a little bit, but I want to focus on the goats specifically because of the way parables worked in, in that day. Uh, parables, in, in many ways, worked like, uh, like a stand-up comedian would deliver a joke. You guys know how this goes, right? A, a stand-up comedian, if they're really good, will take an audience's train of thought down a certain path, right? And then all of a sudden, what, they catch them with, what do we call that? The punchline, very good, the punchline. You catch them, and it's sort of like a reversal of where they were taking, and it's funny. I don't know how. It just always becomes, you know, funny for, for people. Well, a parable is a verbal device that Jesus often uses that in many ways does the same thing. In fact, the prophets were skilled, highly skilled at this, to take people's mind down a certain pathway and then all of a sudden deliver that punchline. Now, it's not funny, but... It's extremely powerful. It's a very powerful device, verbal device that, that Jesus uses. And so what we find in this parable, there's a couple of those different catching moments. And the, the big one is, is at the end. Because he accuses the goats that I was hungry and you did not give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was, I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was in prison and you did not visit me. All of these different accusations. And the goats respond with, in many ways, what I think I would respond. In Matthew 25, 44, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Isn't it interesting that the goats uh, recognize Jesus as Lord isn't it interesting that they recognize him, Jesus, as Lord, but also insinuate that, Lord, if you had been a little bit more clearer, God, if you had been a little bit more explicit to us, of course we would have followed your directions. Of course we would have, have done what you commanded us to do. We're faithful people. We are people of, of, of church, of faith. Of course, if you would have given us the rule book, if you would have given us the outline, we, we would have followed it. So when did, how did we miss this, this, this communication with you? And what's interesting is that all of this was hidden from these people that are deemed as, as the goats. And when I talked about Isaiah in The Stranger, we specifically addressed people who were um, acting, in fact, actually all of the different scriptures that we've covered, you find different people doing things that God is not happy about, right? People that go astray, people that go their own pathway, or they begin to worship other gods, or they begin to, begin to practice injustice. They do all of these things 
that are counter to the will and to the purposes and to the very nature of God. And we've understood that, that God is not happy and God holds accountable the actions and the behaviors that are not according to God's purposes. But this is surprising to Jesus' audience when he's telling this parable because it wasn't the actions that he is accusing them of, it's their inactions. It's the fact that they let go the opportunities and the very presence of God in Jesus Christ in their midst. We think about sin a lot of times in terms of our actions and our behaviors, but how often do we think about our, our inactions? the times when we just sort of let it go in the midst of our own busyness. When I read this about the goats, I can't help but to find myself. I, I mean, I like to think I'm a sheep, but when I read this, I think about my life, I think about our lives here in this culture, in this society, how overcommitted we are, how overstimulated we are, how just plain exhausted we are as a people because we're so much on the go and doing this, doing that, doing the other thing. And I wonder in the midst of my overcommittedness, my overstimulation and just being tired, how many opportunities do I miss of, of, of Jesus being right there in front of me? And what's even worse, too, as a person of faith, and remember, the goats recognize Jesus as Lord, and so I take this as people like you and me, people that are maybe in church practicing our faith, people that believe in God, believe in, in Jesus. And, and I think about all the ways in which um, maybe the, not only do we distract ourselves and find ourselves dismissing or, 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 or completely hiding away from these different opportunities. But how often do we, in the midst of our Christian activities, miss those chances because of the way we, we have designed things? How many times I wonder that writing checks to a local charity is a great way of keeping those other people at a distance? How so many times when we don't feel like we know what to do about the evils and the, and the injustices of this world that we feel satisfied within ourselves if we take it to Facebook. Or how many times we involve ourselves in church activities and come away patting ourselves on the back. Look, look at all the stuff that we were able to do. And when I was a missionary in Haiti, I, I saw this firsthand and uh, in the book, Toxic Charity, Bob Lupton, he talks about this. He, he talks about how sometimes these mission trips can very easily become Christian, another form of Christian tourism. And when I was serving uh, as a longer-term missionary in Haiti, we would have groups that often would, would come to us and, and, and offer you know, their, their help. And, and it was always a lot, you know, because we weren't built. We were a school, and we weren't built to really host groups, but we, but we did it, and we did it joyfully because, you know, it was a way to, to bring people over and, and to have that connection. And I can remember this one time, this group, and, and they just, they had great hearts and the greatest of intentions, but they helped us out throughout the week. And like a lot of mission groups do, they, they had bought clothes to go down to Haiti, and 
to, specifically for that trip. And so they thought in their minds, wouldn't it be great if we just left these clothes? Surely people in Haiti would need clothes. And so we're just gonna, we're just gonna leave these. But they didn't tell us. And remember, we're a school. We're not a clothing distribution organization. And at the end of their time, we got this pile, this pile, because they didn't know like where they should get it washed or anything. It's just a pile of dirty clothes. And I don't mean to be crass, but a lot of it was like, like men's underwear that was like five sizes too big for any Haitian man. And, and it was meaningless. And I have so many stories time and time again of, of people wanting to do the right thing. Their heart is in the right place. They have the best of intentions. And yet in that process, sometimes even cause greater harm and damage. And for what? What's the meaning of that? What was the purpose? Had they spent time to listen to the needs and, and understand? And that's what I love about Pastor Jim's testimony for the Philadelphia trip of how that was, there was just a unity that happened among these two different groups. And a togetherness and a shared ministry that, that happened. Even the sins of inaction could be done in the midst of Christian activity. To outsource the calling that God has given us to, to other people, to, to the missionaries, the people have really bought into it. And we can support them and cheerlead them from the back. And yet, all the nations were brought before Jesus. All the nations were separated between the sheep and the goats. It is personal for all of us. It's a call and it's tough words, it's tough language that Jesus uses that's personal for all of us. And it's personal because heaven and hell hang in the balance. In Matthew 5, 46, Jesus was teaching and he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? There are all kinds of ways to meet or at least to appear to meet the needs of others that is entirely convenient for us. And yet Jesus is saying, what does it look like to go further with that? You notice in these lists of, of things, uh, feeding the hungry, um, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison, three times it says, uses the verb gave, gave. To give of themselves. And it was completely hidden to these people that were set aside to the left, the goats. Now, what's really interesting is that the sheep, the ones whose eternal destination is, is, is heaven, the people that are set aside to the right, the people that are heralded by Jesus they have the exact same response as the goats. Here, here's what it says. It says, the righteous will answer him, and the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that, that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? Isn't that interesting? It was hidden from them as well. But what we find is for completely different reasons. 
Or while the goats were completely unaware of Jesus' presence right there in their midst, in the least of these. These sheep, these people that were tending to the least of these, had made it such a regular routine of their lives, had simply just made their life about the tending of the, of the, the needs of the least of these. They had just become so regular for them that they didn't even notice that Jesus had been there the whole time either. It's kind of like home. Many of you have moved to new homes before. And at first, it's very strange, even uncomfortable. And then as time goes along, you begin to settle in. You get cozy with home. It becomes, sort of just feels different, doesn't it? And it becomes a part of your regular life and how you feel about life and how you, what your life outlook is. You could go away on vacation and come back and you say, oh, it's so good to be home. This is how I understand life as I know it. And here are these sheep, they had made home the tending to the, the needs of the least of these. It had become so regular for them. It had become such a normal practice for them that they just, just did it. They just continued, continued to do it. Uh, Christine Pohl in her book, um, Making Room, she says this, as a way of life, an act of love, an expression of faith, our hospitality reflects and anticipates God's welcome. Simultaneously costly and wonderfully rewarding, hospitality often involves small deaths and little resurrections. By God's grace, we can grow more willing, more eager to open the door to a needy neighbor, a weary sister or brother, a stranger in distress. Perhaps as we open that door more regularly, we will grow increasingly sensitive to the quiet knock of angels. In the midst of a life-giving practice, we too might catch glimpses of Jesus who asks for our welcome and welcomes us home. I have a friend that I've shared with you before. His name is Steve. And Steve, as far as I can tell, is a sheep. He left a career of business to go into the ministry. And shortly after being in ministry, as God called him into something more dynamic, he left that, the securities of a, of a church, pastoring a church, and decided that he was going to minister to the homeless in Toledo. And Steve is one of those people that... Um, you know, he, he's not holier than thou. He's not uh, unassuming or anything like that. Or he's not um, just sitting on an ivory tower or anything like that. I and mean, he's the kind of guy you just want to have, have coffee with. And uh, he, over the last, uh, let's see, 13 years, he has just made it a part of his regular life to reach out to the homeless in the city of, of Toledo. And a couple years ago, they, the Toledo Blade ra ran an article on him and the impact that he had made over the years. And what's interesting is that uh, if you read the article, you would think that this is some hero of the faith and this is some like just, just hugely dynamic personality and leader and all of that. And well, he, he's just not. He's got a quiet way about him, a wise way about him. And in many 
circles, especially if you've just met him, you wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. You wouldn't notice him in any way. But here's the thing. When I, when I spent some time with him over a weekend to see all that he did, he, he invited me to come and participate in this great event that they do in Toledo. A bunch of different churches and ministries come together and they just serve, they open up this empty lot and they set up tables and some food trucks come and donate and they just feed the homeless. It's just, it's really cool. It's just sort of this big thing and, and I was there and I was talking with a few people trying to engage in conversation and I was talking with this guy, just asking him questions, trying to learn more about his life, his perspective. And he looks over and he says, hey, you see that guy? And I'm trying to, what was he talking about? And it took me a while to even realize that he was talking about my friend Steve. He's like, you see that guy? And I didn't even pick him out of a crowd, first of all. He was my friend. And he pointed at him, he said, that's a holy man right there. And I joke with my more traditional friends that kind of wear their collar. You know, and we go back and forth, should a pastor wear a collar and, you know, all of that. And they're my friends, so we have these conversations and everything like that. And I understand the arguments. And, but isn't it interesting that this man, he picked him out of a crowd, the holiness of this man. I mean, he, he didn't even realize it. this man saw it. And I think, I wish someone would say that about me someday. I really do. It's personal for us. And Jesus makes it personal for us because heaven and hell hang in the balance. But you know what? It's personal for Jesus too because his love hangs in the balance. People will know who Jesus is by his people's ability to tend to the least of these, to practice radical love, not convenient love, to practice radical love to love others to the point where it hurts and it's sacrificing. To go outside of our comfort zones. To go outside of our, our normal places that we, that we walk and we, and we drive. To those places where maybe we'd even be compelled to lock the doors as we were driving through. What does that love look like? And I have to think, doesn't our world need that kind of love? When you... Read the news. Do, doesn't our world need this? And yet we have the words right here in, in this book. Yeah, really tough words, difficult words, but you know what? These are our words. This is our book. Jesus is our Lord. And while sometimes I myself, I'll wrestle, think, man, Lord, I hope I'm not a goat. I also am blessed with the encouragement of the sheep represent his love. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, truly I tell you, just as you did it to the one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. It is personal for Jesus. In the book, uh, God is Stranger, Christian Kandai, he says, he says it this way, Jesus' identification with the poor here, not just putting himself alongside them or, or standing in their shoes, but suffering as they suffer, must rebut not only any idea of a distant, elusive God, but also any temptation to keep those in need at arm's length. 
This is what we are being invited to, into as God's people. And God, God's love hangs in the balance. And all of this is, you know, so difficult, as I, as I said before, and, and challenging for us, but, but it gets a little bit more palatable when I remember uh, 1 John four nineteen, which says that we love because, why? Because he first loved us. We are the least of these two. Jesus met our met us in our need, in our weakness, in our vulnerability. Jesus comes to heal the skeletons that we have in the closet, our sicknesses, our pain, everything that Pastor Jim talked about earlier. This is where Jesus came down to meet us where we are at, to wrap his arms around us, to heal us, to redeem us, so that we would have a testimony to say, this is what love truly is like. So, my invitation to all of us is to consider what does radical love look like? What does the, the, the radical love of Jesus look like? What does it look like in your heart? And I pray that that little reflection would give you just an, a, an extra ounce of compassion and mercy and love for those that stand in need. And that's my prayer. Would you stand it? I'd like to pray that over us this, today. Holy God, forgive us. Because right now it seems like the world knows your people more about what we're against than what we're for. Let us be so consumed with your radical love. Let us be so consumed with your radical love that it flows out of us into all people. Thank you for being a God of love. We don't even know the half of it. So continue to teach us and show us and reveal yourself to us. We pray, not according to our own strength or power, but because of you, Jesus. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. Go as God's people filled with God's love and representing that love to those around us in the world. You're dismissed. <laughs>